The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. How are we doing today? I'm so glad that you came back after last week. I was uncertain of how many people were going to be in the room today. Um, so if you made it through last week, um, you might just make it here at Westway Christian Church. This, this just might be uh, the church home for you. If you have your Bible with you today, I would love for you to open it to uh, Romans chapter one. If you have the YouVersion app on your phone, you can also follow along on there. I've loved seeing people interacting with that app throughout the week. We've been doing uh, different Bible reading plans and different Bible studies. And it's been really cool to see people um, engaging that content. I had a conversation with one of our pastors about this the other day. And we were talking about like, we, we wish that more people were involved and more people were engaged. And I said, well, one of the one of the neat things that's happening on this app and these Bible reading plans is there's like a consistent group of like six to eight people who are, who are on every single day. And then once or, twice, once or twice throughout the week, someone else will just sort of pop in and, and drop something that they're learning and how they're growing. And it's really cool to see that. And I really want to encourage you to join into that Bible reading plan with, with your church body. Um, we've, we've enjoyed being able to do that. Um, so we are, we're starting this series called How the Bible Works. And beginning next week, we're gonna begin to overview all 66 books of the Bible. I'm gonna explain this more to you next week. But right now, as I said last week, we're, we're sort of laying this foundation. And, and foundations aren't, you know, they're not very attractive part of the building, um, if I weren't in church, I would say the foundation of a building isn't very sexy, right? When you think of a building, that's not the most attractive part of the building is the foundation. But here's the thing. It's the most important part of the building. It's the most important part of, of what's being built. And when we think about the foundation of what we're talking about with God's word, like, you know, it's, it's not digging deeply into uh, some of the books of the Bible that we're gonna do, but it's, but it's an important part. It's, un, it's an important part of understanding where the Bible comes from. Um, I wonder if you've ever been to a Renaissance festival. Would, would any, I'm sorry, would anyone admit to actually going to a Renaissance festival? Okay, a few people. Where I was growing up in Georgia, um, we would, one of the malls that we went to, we had these things called malls when I was growing up in the 80s. And people would go there and they would shop and they would go there to interact with other people um, in, in the world, right? Because we weren't all doing it on phones. But we would always go to this place called Shannon Mall was one of the malls that we went to in Georgia. And in the summertime, just as we were starting to hit the interstate coming out of Peachtree City, there would always be this sign right next to the interstate that said Renaissance Festival coming soon. And I always thought, what a bunch of nerds. Who, who would go to the Renaissance Festival? Um, well, I've only been to one. And this was, this was probably 10 years ago. We were living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And there was a Renaissance Fair, Renaissance Festival, about 30 minutes away. And we had all of our kids. And my mom, um, I think my mom was living with us at that time. So we decided that we were going to go to this Renaissance Festival and kind of spend our day there. And if you haven't been to a Renaissance Festival, it's exactly like you think it would be. 
okay? So whatever your percent, like the big turkey leg, um, they had all of that stuff at the Renaissance Festival. People walking around in period costume, um, talking in different languages, like that was all going on at the Renaissance Festival. And we went to this one booth that was selling swords that you could buy. And of course, there were people buying swords. And one of the things, and I didn't buy one, so just to clarify, um, I'm not that far on the Renaissance Festival scale, scale that I bought a sword. Um, but, but while they were talking about these swords, um, the, guy, like the guy who was selling them made this phrase, and he said it, um, and I'll kind of try to mimic his accent, so I'll apologize in advance. It was something like, don't just buy a sword to hang on your wall, learn how to use it. Like that was his whole thing. Don't just buy a sword, take home and hang on your wall, learn how to use it. So then what they did was um, you could pay a couple bucks and they would give someone a wooden sword and like you would learn like some basic moves that I will not demonstrate for you um, this morning. And I've been thinking about that as we have been as we've been getting ready to go into this series about the Bible. Don't just buy a sword and hang it on your wall. Learn how to use it. See, this, this book is, is, is a powerful weapon that God has, that God has given us. It's it's able to, like when we read it, it tells us that it's able to, able to cut through flesh and bone. Able to, even to, able to separate um, bone and marrow to get to the very heart of what's happening in someone's life. And like a sword, because it's a, because it's a weapon, one of the things that we have to do is we, we have to learn how to use it. We have to, we have to learn the skills and the moves to learn how to use this, this very powerful weapon. And, and, and part of that process is learning how to trust it, right? Sort of step one, if, 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 I'm, going to, if I'm going to use a weapon, I, I have to know what it can do. I have to have confidence in it that, that if it were a real sword and I, and I swing it at someone, like I have to com- have confidence it's not going to break, right? I want to know that it's going to function or, um, you know. So in our house, like we have firearms. You probably have firearms in your home too, right? Like you, learn, you want to learn how to use it, right? You want to, you want to have confidence. You want to be able to trust what, what it is. And we talked about that um, we talked about that last week. We, we want to know that the Bible will hold up to historical scrutiny. We want to know that it's historic. We can have confidence. We can have historical confidence that it's something that's trustworthy. And another part of knowing how to use the Bible, we're going to talk just for a couple minutes about this today. Another part about learning how to have confidence with the Bible is, is knowing how it was put together. Like, how did we get, how did we get this in this format? Where did, where did this come from? Um, and if you learn that from the Da Vinci Code, um, your information is wrong. Okay, just, just laying that out there. Um, the History Channel may not be the most accurate place for you to get your information about how the Bible is put together. So 
So one of the things, I got this question last week for our Tuesday Q&A, and I said, well, I'm glad you asked that question because we're actually gonna talk about that next week. So hold on until Sunday. This is in the Bible app. So we are not able to, I, we can't put this on the screen, but this is, in the, this is in the Bible app. So if you use that Bible app, you're, I'm just gonna kind of read what's there for you. Um, one of the things that, that we first have to understand um, about, about how this book was assembled was, was when they, and I'll get to the they in a moment, when they put this book together, each and every book in this book had already been accepted by the church. Does that make sense? The church at large, capital C, church, was already using either the entire, every one of the books or elements of every single one of the books by the time they put it together. By the time the canon was made official, right? So, so it wasn't like, hey, we have this set of texts that we're using. We should just add this one because that would be a good thing to put in. No, that's not, wasn't how it worked. It was, they took a set of books, a set of texts because they were already using them. Um, they were already using them together. And there are five, five tests that they really used in, in kind of deciding finally what, what went in. Um, the first one was authorship. And again, you can, this is all in your version notes, which is why you should be using that app. Authorship. They asked questions like, did a widely accepted follower of God write it? Did the author hold great authority and respect for within the church community? Right, so who wrote this thing? Who put this thing together? Is it someone we trust? Is it someone, is it someone we know? Here's, here's the second thing, uh, confirmation. Was the author confirmed by God as a recognized prophet or leader? Was the author an apostle or an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus and or the early church? So who wrote it and, and can, are, are they confirmed? Is it like a trusted person that, that we know? Here's the third thing, accuracy. Does the book tell the truth about God? That's probably a pretty important one. Does the book, just a little. Does the book tell the truth about God? Is its message consistent with other accepted books of the Bible? And remember last week when we talked about all of those things, we talked about the age of manuscripts and how many manuscripts. So like when I read a text like Ezekiel, and then I read a text like First Peter, do I see some consistency in the way that God is operating? Am I seeing the same God? Okay, here's, here's the fourth thing, power. Does the book demonstrate the life-transforming power of God? How does this book impact the lives of its, of its readers? This is a little bit, actually, more of what we're gonna talk about today. The phrase that I'm going to use to describe that is, is the Bible timeless and timely? Does it have an impact? When I, when I read this, is it leading to something or is it just information? And here's the, here's the fifth one. Has the book been widely accepted by the Jewish or Christian communities as being the authoritative word of God? Was the book widely recognized as the word of God as it circulated throughout the community of faith? So has it, has it been a part of what God has been doing since the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, ascension of Jesus, 
and the, and the spreading out of the church? Is it consistent with all five of these things? So the short version is, we got this book because it met those five criteria. And that was, that's important. Like we wanna know, we wanna be able to trust, we wanna be able to understand how, how this thing is put together. But, but here's the thing, that's just like all of those statistics we talked about last week. Those things do not give this book its power because it's just, just, it's just historically accurate. Like just because we have all of these manuscripts and all of this proof doesn't mean that everything that's inside of it is necessarily true, right? Or has, or has value and meaning for me. So again, if I were to read a book like The Iliad by Homer, like it's, his, like it's historically trustworthy in that we know Homer wrote it, but that's not the same thing as the Bible. Those are two very different books. So the Bible doesn't get necessarily its power from the fact that it's trustworthy. And that it also doesn't get its, its power from the fact that people put it together to give it to us. So we have to ask this, we have to ask this question, well, what, why is this book powerful then? Because there are lots of books that, that we read that do not claim the things that this book claims. So we have to start asking a different set of questions. In 1 Corinthians, um, Paul's, Paul's writing to a very divided church. We're gonna get to Corinthians at some point in my time here at Westway Christian Church probably 2024. We're going to get we're going to get to Corinthians. But Paul's writing to a church that is that is filled with division. That is filled with anxiety. He's writing to a church who 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 are choosing sides. Well, I I like Paul and I like Apollos. I really prefer this the way this person leads music on a Sunday morning and I can't stand the way that person leads music. Do you feel the tension in that? See, that's, that's this phrase, that's the, that's the situation that Paul is writing into. And, and Paul says this, um, this is the Mulholland paraphrase. He says, I didn't use lofty words or fancy words or awesome slideshows to tell you what God's secret plan is. I decided that while I was there, I'd forget everything but Jesus Christ so that I would rely only on the Holy Spirit so that you would trust in God and not in human people. See, Paul cuts through all of the things that, that especially we in the West build up as important. And he says, I'm not gonna rely on any of those things. I'm, I'm just gonna tell you what God says. I'm just going to share with you God's word because I trust in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit to change your life. Paul's saying, you don't need me to be a fancy, eloquent speaker to be able to lead to life change. What you need to hear, church at Corinth, who are divided and who are not living out the gospel, is you need to hear the gospel. 
You need to hear the words of God. I'm not saying we're a divided church because I don't believe we are. What I am saying is we, as God's people, need to hear his word. And we need to let that be enough. The word that we used a few weeks ago, I, I, I introduced you to was sufficient. And I know we've talked about that before. Is God's word sufficient? One of the things that I think about over the last few years, and, and maybe you've seen this, like we have just been, we've just been inundated with, with people telling us how we ought to understand reality. And here's, here's what I mean for that. I mean by that. Um, one of my favorite books to read, um, and I read it every year, is George Orwell's 1984. I love George Orwell's 1984. And one of the things that's really interesting about George Orwell's 1984 is the way people use it to describe our reality today. I've seen this phrase on social media a million times over the last four years in particular. Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten, rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute for minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Do you see how people are using that book to try and describe our reality today? Using George Orwell to point out the flaws in our system Another book that I've only read a few times is Animal Farm, also by George Orwell. I love this stuff. And I love it when people try to use it to describe reality. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Apply that as you will, as you go into the voting booth, apply that. And then going all the way back to my time in high school, um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Each one of these books attempt to describe reality to us. But here's the thing. Paul says that the only thing that matters is Christ and his revelation. So as we try to figure out what's wrong in the world. You are going to have voices inundate you telling you what's wrong with the world. We're gonna hear that all the time. In fact, the other day, I was, as I was coming to the office on Tuesday mornings, or Tuesday morning, I was listening to, I was listening to NPR. And you can do what you want with that. I was listening to NPR. And they had a, they, had a, a, they shared a quote from an important, uh, an important political figure in our time. And I'm not gonna tell you who it is. He said, um, he said, our, our hearts will not be settled until systemic racism is ended. 
Our hearts will not be settled until systemic racism is ended. And I said, wait a minute, I wanna make sure I get that right. So I hit the little button, you know, the little button on your phone that rewinds back 15 seconds when you're listening to something. And I heard him say it again. He said, the heart will not be settled. Human hearts will not be settled until systemic racism has ended. And I literally in my car by myself shouted, that is theologically incorrect. You've got it backwards. See, until our hearts are settled, we will have systemic racism. Until our hearts are settled, we will have all of the problems that exist in our world. What we need to hear, what we need to know is what the Bible says about our reality. We need to understand how the Bible describes reality. And it's not just trust. In order for it to do that well, the Bible can't just be trustworthy. It has to be timeless and it has to be timely. So here's, here's what I'm gonna do for the rest of our time together. All of these verses are, are in our tech, are in the version piece. I'm gonna put them up on the screen and we're just gonna talk a little bit about them and share them. This is, this is Judges 21 verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Does that sound like our reality? People just doing whatever they want. And we're gonna talk about judges later this year, which I'm really excited about. If the, if the Bible were a video game, solely based on the book of Judges, it would be MA, mature audiences only. I am so excited to read through the book of Judges. See, this is timely truth. This is timeless truth. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their eyes. And here's, here's the trick about Judges. He's not, the author of Judges is not talking about a human king. He's talking about God. Because the people don't have God as their king, everyone is going to do what is, seems right in their own eyes. This is Romans 1, 18 through 23. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful and wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. And I know I always talk about this the same way. I just have one life. But today, when you walk out those doors, you're going to see the monument to our South. And the question that we ought to ask is, who put that there? Someone put that there, right? I've shared this before too. Several years ago, I was on a hiking trip with students. We were in the middle of nowhere in Western North Carolina. 
Like literally, like we were like on a little trail that was like this wide in the middle of nowhere, walking up this big hill. And there was this railroad line, like six foot of metal steel railroad line, just in the middle of the woods. And you know what my first thought wasn't? Well, with enough time and pressure, I think that piece of steel magically appeared there. No, I asked the question, who put that there? Where'd that come from? How'd that, how'd that get there? So God has given us creation to reveal things about himself. And what did we do with that? What did humans do with that? Let's continue in Romans 1, verse 21. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. Remember, Paul is describing life 2,000 years ago. So before you decide to pull a 1984 and tell me about life, Paul is describing something that happened 2,000 years ago. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. See, this, this text is painting a pretty bleak outlook on humanity, right? I mean, do you see that? Every one of these books and a whole host of other books and movies that we consume paint an incredibly bleak future for humanity. Like I, even though I've read 1984 every year, I'm like 95% of the way through the book every year and I'm thinking that the, that the main character is going to change the world and then like I get to the back page and he's been brainwashed and he just goes right along with the rest of them and I'm like oh I hate this book 
It's like so depressing. See, and if we just, if we just stop at the end of Romans 1, we have a pretty bleak outlook on life. We have a timeless outlook on life. We have a timely outlook on life. But Paul isn't done in Romans because he wants to make sure that every single person who is going to read this understands reality. So in Romans 3.23, he says this, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Here's, Here's what Paul wants every single one of us to know. No one matches up. You can't. You don't. And before you say, and before I say, well, at least I'm not Hitler. There was one Hitler. And each and every one of us, because of our sin, fall short of God's glory. Talking more about that in three weeks. Each and every one of us falls short of God's glory. This is, this is the picture that Paul is painting for us, that he wants us to grasp And I think you would get that, maybe not the God part, but you would get that you don't, there's something fundamentally wrong with you just from reading this. You would have questions about reality. And then Paul's not done. In Romans 6.23, he says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, so what do we, what's the end game of all of this sin that's in our lives. Where does, this, where does this lead us? What does the Bible have to say? Because if the Bible is the place where we go to learn our reality, we have to understand where the Bible is pointing us. If we are all sinners falling short of the glory of God, our payment for that is death. All of our payments for that are death. There's no one who doesn't deserve death. There's no one who doesn't deserve these wages. And see, we know this from our work life. For those of us that work, those of us that have jobs, when we work, we get paid. Well, what Paul is saying here is when we sin, we get paid. And the wages of our sin, the payment for our sin is death. But don't you love Paul's but there? But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Your sin, my sin, has put me in a place where I deserve death. But God has something else for you. He has a free gift. This is Romans 5, 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. See, this is is the hope of the gospel that Paul is telling the church in Corinth about. While we were still sinners, while we were in that dead phase, 
And we talked about this a few years ago. Remember, we were going through Ephesians chapter two. We talked about the guy who was the, who was the prisoner of war during the Korean War. Everyone thought he was dead because they found his jacket on the battlefield and they wrote him off as dead. His wife remarried. That guy's dead. Well, he was in a POW camp and he probably didn't feel dead. He may have wished he was dead, but he didn't feel dead. And I wonder for how many people who do not know Christ are in the same exact position. They're observing all of these things that are happening in our culture, all of these wicked, evil things. And they just wish life would be over. But they themselves don't feel like they're dead. See, Paul is speaking to a spiritual truth here. There's a way to be alive, but be spiritually dead. To fool yourself. And what God has done to people who are dead to people who are sinners is he has sent his son, Jesus, to pay for our sins while we were still sinners. And I've heard so many conversations from people like, I can't come to church. I think the building's gonna fall on me. The building would have fallen on every single one of us first, okay? And if you think that you are not in that category, if you have placed yourself in a moralistic category that you really weren't dead. I mean, you weren't as bad as other people. I don't think you understand the gospel. See what God, what Paul is telling us through God is that we were dead. We were worthy of our wages. And I don't know what you were like before you became a Christian. I know what I was like and I was getting paid in my death in droves. And what Jesus has done is while we were yet sinners, he saved us. He paid the price on the cross for us. And he did this not because he had to. I want you you to remove that mindset from your head for a moment. Jesus didn't do that, didn't save you, didn't save me, didn't offer to save you. If you're not a believer here today, Jesus didn't offer to save you because he had to. He did it because he loved you. John 3, 16, we all know it because that maniac in the end zone always holding up the sign. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that whoever, see see how when you get other verses and other translations mired into your brain? Let's start this over. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Don't stop at John 3.16. Read John 3, 17. God sent Jesus not to judge the world, but to save it. But FYI, there's a judgment coming. And the pathway to avoid that judgment is to respond 
to God. That's the pathway. That's, that's all you have to do is respond to God in obedience. Because he loves you. And he sent his son for you and he sent his son for me because he loves me, like me, while I was still a sinner. Like, one of the conversations that Ann and I have had a number of times, like we've been married for 29 years. And... We both love each other more now than we did when we first got married. If you're married, you probably are familiar with that concept. Or if you've been in a relationship with someone, you're familiar with that concept. Like, she may jokingly disagree with this and maybe not. I'm probably more lovable now than I was 29 years ago. Thank you. <clears throat> I would think that after my relationship with Jesus, because he has been transforming my heart and my life, that I'm probably a little more lovable in Jesus's mindset. But Jesus picked me while I was completely unlovable. Jesus picked me while I was completely unworthy, which I still am. Jesus picked me while I was dead because he loves me. Because it would, be, it would be easier for Jesus, right, to light up the flamethrower from Revelation and burn the whole thing down. But he wants to save us. He wants to deliver us from our sin. Because he loves us. And all we have to do is respond. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter's just given this tremendous sermon, this message where he told all the people that um, all of the prophets, all of the prophecies about the Messiah came true in the person of Jesus. All of the things, all of the things that you and your people and our people have waited generations for. Everything that you have ever wanted was true in the person of Jesus Christ. And like Paul would later write in Romans, and what'd you do with him? You killed him. All of your wildest dreams were right in front of you in the person of Jesus Christ. And you murdered him. And in verse 37, it says something like, And they were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what must we do? And Peter just said this, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's it. All we have to do is repent of our sins, turn to God, be baptized, and you receive the Holy Spirit. If you want to be free from this guilt that that you are now living with, accept Christ. And see, we can have confidence in this because in Romans 10, Paul writes this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, if, if this book is accurately describing our reality, what are we going to do with it? Like, these are fun reads. I'm not going to lie. I, I love reading these books. But they don't tell me anything about what to do that solves my heart problem. They don't tell you anything. They don't give you any response on how to deal with the sin that dwells inside of you. Because they can't, because they're not God's word. What I would love for you, if you have not... If you have not made this decision to follow Christ, to, to, like today just needs to be your day. Today just needs to be the day. You need to resolve that Jesus loves you and he's the fix. Fixing, like, Fixing systemic racism is not going to fix our hearts because the very next thing they talked about was all of the laws they put into place to fix what's wrong. Is that gonna, is that gonna fix it? We're gonna talk so much more about this in this series. But we need is new hearts. We need the thing that only Jesus can do because only Jesus loves us enough to fix us. And that fix comes through him on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And if you haven't made that decision, like can today just be your day? If you've been wrestling with this for a while and wondering, should I do this? Should I not do it? I'm not sure. Can, can you just do it today? Can we just have a conversation about that? Can you just submit your life to the one who has been calling you your entire life to know what real life is? Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that not only is it trustworthy, but it is timeless and timely. It speaks into the realities of our world today. And the realities of our world today is we are messed up. And it doesn't matter who our king is if our king is not you. For those who are feeling conviction from your word today. I just pray that they would find comfort in your word. For those who are reading that the wages of sin is death, I pray that they would read a little bit more and see that the free gift of God is life through Jesus Christ. And I pray that they would make that decision today. It's in your son's name, amen.